Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Donald Trump is determined to instill fear in America. That's what his entire campaign for the president has come down to. Fear. Paint is not, and paint is a defensive mechanism. Paint is not bullets. We'll take a beefalo over Godzilla any day. I want to see it. I want to know how big it is, but I'm kind of scared to see this it. This is where students will enter. They'll come in. They'll hand sanitize. We're going to have an extension of the emergency powers for another five months. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Those are some of the voices in the news. We heard Governor Ned Lamont and Academy of Science and Innovation Principal Karen Mooney in New Britain. Also, people in Plymouth, Connecticut, talking about the recent escape of a beefalo on the way to the slaughterhouse, audio courtesy of NBC Connecticut. We also heard from President Donald Trump defending some of his supporters who drove through Portland, Oregon, shooting paintballs at protesters. And in the mix, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and uh, also we want to tell you that the beefalo, if you're wondering, is a cross between a cow and a bison. The half-ton bull is still at large. The current reported he's still on the loose, and police are using drones to find him. Now that I got that out of the way on the panel today, David Collins is with us, columnist for the day in New London. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Have you ever heard of a beefalo before, David? <laughs> I have not, but it sounds, uh, it sounds like I might be good on uh, my barbecue. <laughs> Susan Raff is also with us, Chief Capital Reporter for Eyewitness News Channel 3 at WFSB. Uh, Susan, welcome back. Good morning. Nice to be here. And Colin McEnroe is here, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, and he's a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Actually, I thought the whole show was going to be about the beefalo, so I'm not that well prepared <laughs> on other topics. Well, we could start there if you'd like. You can also follow us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. We're going to start with the serious uh, because we just heard uh, Governor Lamont has been wanting to extend his emergency uh, powers during this pandemic. And he signed an emergency declaration that does expand his authority. That's through February 9th. I'll start with you, Colin. Uh, does this come as a surprise or something that's needed because uh, coronavirus is still around us? It doesn't come as a surprise. Um, I wish that I had the, this really clear, you know, scimitar-like um, response to this. And, and unfortunately, I have kind of a muddy response to it. I mean, overall, I'm somebody who believes in government. I think government should be good. We should have really good government. And this, for the most part, isn't really good government. And, and it leads to a lot of things. A lot of things get passed by executive order. They are not appropriately reviewed. Uh, I actually do think we're going to have a morass of executive orders to pour through when this is all over to try to figure out, you know, what else happened here while we were uh, worried about COVID-19. So that's sort of the downside of it. Uh, I, I think the upside of it is we are probably headed for more uh, dire situations here in the fall. Uh, COVID is going to uptick because of the reopening of the schools, which we'll be talking about later, and other factors that tend to drive it. Um, I don't think for the most part, I mean, for, and I emphasize for the most part, I don't think Lamont has used these powers to turn into some kind of petty tyrant. You could even make the case that in certain sectors, he hasn't been enough of a tyrant. Um, I think by and large, he's exercised these uh, added powers 
pretty judiciously for the good of the people. Uh, so, you know, this is why, why I'm muddy. I'm I'm not comfortable with it as government. I don't think it's good government, but it might be necessary government right now, particularly if you assume, as I do, that October, November, and December are going to be like March, April, and May, but maybe even a little bit worse. Hmm. Susan Rafa, what do you think? I imagine that uh, bars and some restaurant owners probably aren't rejoicing at the news that, that uh, Governor Lamont's emergency powers have been extended. No, you know, I did uh, a few stories uh, yesterday, and I kind of agree uh, with Colin about uh, it sets a difficult stage uh, for government. It makes it a lot easier for the governor, obviously, to uh, have certain things in place without having to go to the legislature for every single executive order. So it takes that out of the equation, um, which is what legislators want. They, they, they want the ability to be able to do that. That's what Republicans are doing. I agree. I don't think that the governor is abusing uh, his power. Uh, I think that his intentions are to, um, you know, to get the state out of or to protect us against the pandemic. But it does set up uh, a bad precedence. I mean, this is unheard of. You know, I think the only other time uh, during a state of emergency, I think Governor Malloy put a um, executive order in place was during Ebola. But it was really a travel advisory. It was far limited in scope. So to have carte blanche and be able to do this again for five months, I think it is a slippery slope. But, um, you know, again, these are unprecedented times. And I think people just want us to continue uh, to fight this pandemic. Hmm. David Collins, when we look at the fact that Connecticut compared to other states, I mean, the cases here are still low. Does that demonstrate the governor's leadership over the last six months, help make the case that this extension of emergency powers is necessary? As Susan uh, mentioned, we are in unprecedented times and, uh, you know, people want to make sure that it doesn't get as bad as it was in the spring. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I certainly agree. It's a, um, I mean, I would, Characterize it as a necessary evil. Um, like Colin, I, none of us in, in journalism like to think of of an all powerful governor who can do things um, on a whim. And all these executive orders might pile up, and we'll look back in time and, and, and see some of the things that we may not like. But you know, as you said, we've, we've been successful. The Northeast has been successful. Connecticut's been successful. Um, I think um, the approval ratings ratings for the governor and his handling of the pandemic. Um, are all indicators that, that he deserves uh, uh, the opportunity to, to keep keeping, keep, keeping us safe uh, on in um, to the winter until the legislature can, can convene uh, in a full session and, and take some of these matters up themselves. So, and there really is no alternative. I mean, it, uh, you can't suddenly push the switch and let the let the lights go go off on on September 10th and bars reopen and 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 the party begin again. I, I think nobody wants to give up the hard fought. Um, um, wins that we've had so far in the pandemic. Mm. That's a good point, David. Uh, Colin, if uh, the governor hadn't signed this emergency declaration, what would have happened uh, that day? Yeah, um, I, I, and I don't, I, off the top of my head, don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think a, a lot of these measures probably could be kept in force absent the emergency declaration. But I mean, I think David makes a really good point that there's just some stuff that's in place right now that seems to be working, seems to be necessary. And, and I, I guess, 
First of all, I, I think the Republicans, in criticizing this and issuing a statement of it, they've been pretty measured in their criticism, at least in the formal statement. And they didn't. They said this doesn't mean they think that uh, Governor Lamont has done a bad job. Uh, they just think it's there's not enough consultation. Now, in some of their informal comments, they've used terms <laughs> like power grab. Um, and and I guess what I would say about all that is, I would have to be persuaded that bipartisan consultation is going to produce a better result, that there's some kind of ingredient <clears throat> that would come into the process. I mean, the process itself would be good just as a thing, but is there content that would come into the, uh, the, the process that would be really helpful and necessary to us? And would that value exceed the problem of having like a lot of people squabbling about stuff. If it turns into squabbling, if it turned into political posturing at all, uh, you know, uh, and if it slowed down the ability to make some of these decisions that really kind of do meet, need to be made over one week windows or sometimes mm -hmm. even smaller windows, uh, I, you know, I think that's an argument for letting Lamont keep <laughs> the power for a few more months. I mean, there's things that he that he has tendencies that we don't like. Like, for example, he doesn't like the Freedom of Information Act for some reason. And so he's going to use just naturally some of the abilities that he has to push back against things like that. So those are ways in which maybe all of us on the panel might be a little unhappy. But, you know, I, I do think this is a very, very serious situation. It's probably too serious for commonplace politics. And, mm -hmm. and that's the argument for just letting Lamont push ahead as he's been going so far. Colin, speaking of process, and I mentioned that he signed this emergency declaration, but there's a committee of 10 that could accept or reject. Can you explain that to us? Well, I don't know if I can explain the existence of the committee, but I can say <laughs> that it's a 6-4, I believe, Democrats to Republicans. So it's unlikely that it will meet. Uh, if it were to meet, uh, it's unlikely that it would vote to overturn anything that Lamont is doing or to rescind uh, the emergency declaration. Yeah. So there's there is like oversight built into this so that, you know, I mean, if if Lamont turned into the emperor of Commodus and started doing, you know, really wacky things or if he turned into President Trump and started doing really wacky things, it's conceivable that you'd have a bipartisan uh, oversight, a little bit of check and balance uh, there. And I think that's what the Committee of Ten is there for. But under these circumstances, I don't think it's going to be part of this process. Mm. Susan Rapp, did you want to add to that, this Committee of Ten that uh, would be would consider this? Well, the committee, as I understand it, it's legislative leaders uh, from both parties uh, in both chambers, and then you have the public health committee chairs. And so mm -hmm. there is a, uh, you know, a Democratic majority, and they seem to side with the governor. Um, they have the ability to vote on it, either yay or nay. If they do nothing, uh, they, have the, they have to do it in 72 hours. If they do nothing, it automatically goes into place. And, and I believe the governor is looking to extend it for five months. Mm. Susan, I, if, if the committee were to um, reject the governor's extension, um, then that means um, they pull the rug out from the whole um, pandemic protection program in the state, and there's nothing to replace it. There's no way for the legislature to step in and and impose their own um, uh, rules about bars, and masks, and so it, it's sort of I mean, the only complaint I've heard from the Republicans is that. I mean, basically, they feel like it's it's uncomfortable that the governor is making all these decisions and, and kind of doing it in a way that's making himself more popular. Um, but one thing I've heard them complain about is that he might 
um, extend the he will extend the um, eviction um, prohibition until October. And I can't imagine that they want to become the party of put people out in the street during the pandemic. But that's that seems to be the only objection I've heard uh, loudly to his order and the continuing um, um, rule. You know, since the start of uh, the shutdown in, in Connecticut, um, a lot of uh, people, and we've talked about this on the show, have, have seen the way that Governor Lamont has handled uh, the pandemic, uh, his leadership has, has come out. This has been a good thing uh, for him, especially when you look back at the start of his uh, first term when uh, tolls uh, really bogged down uh, the process and, and didn't reflect well on him. David, you know, you've been writing about how despite the next election for governor is two years away, uh, you know, how this uh, reflects on uh, Ned Lamont, and I'm just curious if you could talk us through uh, some of the points that you've made. Yeah, you know, um, uh, of course, we're looking ahead at this uh, immediate election, but it's hard not to think of how uh, this is beginning to shape um, the, the following election in Connecticut, with Connecticut politics in general. Um, I mean, I think Ned Lamont has, has really helped himself. COVID has been good for him, and he's handled the crisis well, and uh, the numbers reflect that. Um, will people remember that when this is all behind us? And, and is that a way for him to sort of establish a new, stronger footing um, as governor? Maybe it's possible. I think people might forget a little bit about this period of time and, and, and looking ahead at new challenges. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that um, the way the, the, the national elections are gonna affect um, Connecticut politics, I think are kind of unfolding now though. Um, I mean, I think that the, um, some of the Republicans have stepped out of the fray and, and, and aren't on the ballot this, this fall, maybe made a good um, call because probably the, the, the Trump candidacy is not going to help Republicans in Connecticut very much. So maybe this was a good election to, to sit out. Um, and I think we're going to see, I know from my part of the world here, um, um, we have a senator from Groton who seems to have ambitions, um, <laughs> Governor um, Heather Summers, and um, she's in a pretty tough race now, be, partly because of the, of the Trump cast to the election this year. And um, she has a very mixed district that um, um, uh, leans pretty blue along the shoreline and then goes up into um, interior eastern Connecticut, um, where there are a lot of Republican voters, and a lot of Trump supporters. And um, so she has a very difficult fence to straddle. And I think that um, how she makes out in this election will certainly um, determine how whether she can be a candidate in 2022. So it's interesting. It's starting to shape up. I mean, I know we're all looking ahead at at November, but um, you know, I think Connecticut politics is kind of um, morphing a little bit too through all of this. Mm. Colin, what do you think? Is it too early for us to be thinking about the next gubernatorial election? I, mean, I know we have uh, House uh, Republican uh, Minority Leader Themis Claridis, uh, who's uh, leaving, as well as uh, Senator Len Fasano, or, or, and people have been saying that they may be interested in, in running. Uh, what's your take? Well, first of all, I mean, it is early. Um, I would say the following things. I don't think it's a given that Ned Lamont will seek re-election. I would have said um, um, a year and a half ago that he was definitely a one-term governor, and then that was his plan all along. I wouldn't be surprised if some of his conversations with now Lieutenant Governor Bysiewicz in uh, in the course of persuading her to join the ticket instead of opposing him might have included his at least informal assurances that he he wasn't really in it for more than one term. I think his goal was to come in and fix what was broken and leave the state in a better place than where it was. And as an act of noblesse oblique. 
oblige in a very kind of old-fashioned way. So I start there. I don't mm-hmm. think it's a given that Ned Lamont is running in 2020, 2022. I would say he, it's a less than 50% chance at this moment that he's going to do that. I don't know how much he enjoys being governor. That's the part I really don't know. Maybe he enjoys it. Maybe he sees the crisis persisting in a way that makes him necessary. But I'd still put I'd put it below 50%. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd put it around 98% that uh, minority leader Themis Claritus is going to run for governor. Mm-hmm. Obviously, things happen. Things happen to change the situation. I think Fasano is much less likely to run. Stefanowski obviously will get back in it. He's never really stopped running. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't. I I don't see anything so far that helps the Republicans. You know, I mean, I don't see a Democratic bungling of the major. I mean, obviously, we're going to come out of this in worse economic shape. And Lembo's talking about this gigantic deficit. And, you know, there's going to be problems. And it'll be an interesting race, especially if it's by so it's versus uh, Claritus, which I would really enjoy. Um but uh, it is kind of early to talk about all this stuff. Mm. You said something about you're not sure if Governor Lamont enjoys being governor. Uh, tell us more about that observation. Is it, do you think it's because of, uh, of his interactions with the press, the fact that uh, you know there is a lot of attention on what you'd said earlier about you know freedom of information and how you know he wants to run government uh, like he did as a businessman? Well, yeah. Look, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know this, you know, and it could be that he enjoys being governor way more than he ever thought he was going to. You know, I could it could be that, too. Um, but yes, he hasn't always been able to do what he wanted to do, which was to use his business background and his business connections to do certain things in a way that didn't necessarily dot all the I's and cross all the T's of government. And there's been pushback uh, from the press and from other sectors ab- uh, about that. Uh, there's also, you know, this is these are our times when emotions are running high. I believe this coalition of the stupid and misguided is planning another demonstration at the governor's residence. I believe this evening to honk their horns or do whatever they're going to do. I mean, they're a very small group of people, but they make a lot of noise. And, um, you know, but it also could be that that he has felt certain qualities inside himself come to the fore in a very useful way. And he may ultimately decide that you know, the state of Connecticut needs him for another term. But, you know, being governor is not for the most part fun. You know, like being a U.S. senator is really fun or a congressperson. That's really fun because, you know, you're really not super accountable for a lot of things and you don't even see your constituents very often. If you're the governor, you see your constituents every day. And if they're not happy, they'll let you know. I mean, it's not a fun job. It's a job that some people feel called upon to do. But, and you know, and I guess John Rowland made it fun. But, you know, it takes some work to make it a fun job. <laughs> Susan, what do you think? Do you think uh, Governor Lamont would be interested in running again? And I'm curious, your, you know, what your observations about his interactions with the press, it seemed at the beginning of the pandemic, he was definitely uh, more open to speaking with the press beyond these uh, daily briefings. I feel like it's dialed back since then. I think he's grown into the job. I, you know, I probably see the governor two or three times a week. Uh, and, you know, from the beginning uh, to now. And I think there was a big learning curve, especially with the legislature. I don't think he really understood that, you know, many things uh, need to be worked out and, you know, everybody has to try to to, to come together. Um, but I and I, I agree that, you know, being a governor, you have to be so accountable for every little thing. And there's a lot of pushback and a lot of social media and a lot of 
you know, complaining and people want to see this and they don't like that. He seems more comfortable with the job. He seems a little bit more at ease, which is, is, is kind of remarkable considering the magnitude of COVID and all of the things going on. Um, I don't know if he'll, he'll run again. I, you know, I, I, I got the feeling at the beginning that somehow he was thinking, this is not what I signed up for. Uh, and I'm, I'm not happy with this, but somehow I think that as we navigate through COVID and Connecticut has made progress and looks better uh, than many other states, I think he feels a sense of confidence. Um, I wanted to address something, you know, when Dave uh, mentioned and about, you know, people running uh, for governor. If you remember four years ago, Themis Claridis, the minority leader in the House, mm -hmm. was one of the only, uh, you know, she was a proud Trump supporter. And that's difficult in a state like Connecticut at that time when many, you know, were supporting John Kasich. Uh, so I think that uh, could be difficult for her if she chooses to run, plus, you know, her fiance, Greg Butler, and his, uh, you know, association with Eversource. So it'll be interesting to see. But I think uh, Lamont may indeed decide, uh, you know, that he wants to do it again. And I should clarify uh, with the daily briefings, and I know he holds many press conferences, but not as many sit down interviews as in the beginning of the shutdown. A hint, hint, I, I host a show where we live. Hopefully uh, the governor's uh, people can get him back on uh, sometime soon. And before we uh, go into the break, you know, I just wanted to also follow up something that uh, David Collins had mentioned earlier about will people remember um, how uh, Governor Lamont uh, has handled this come uh, the gubernatorial election if he were to run again? Susan, when you think when we think back to just regular people in our state who aren't involved in politics, but are small business owners who are really hurting, I'm thinking about people who own bars. They can't open because of the pandemic. Will they remember? I think they will. I think, you know, you know, when I remember at the beginning uh, when all of these restaurants and bars were shut down and then they were allowed to have outside and now they can have inside with outside. Uh, and those who were fortunate enough to have uh, outside tables, you know, have done better. But, you know, still the impact, the economic impact of this is is huge. And I think that the Connecticut Restaurant Association has tried to work with the governor to try, uh, you know, to prevent uh, these businesses from going under. But, you know, they're not at full uh, capacity. They're not hiring back uh, people. We have huge unemployment in the state. And so, but I'm not sure people blame the governor. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure who they blame. Uh, they want to be able to, to survive. So I think they will remember, but I'm not sure they're going to blame Lamont for it. Mm. Susan Raff is chief capital reporter for Eyewitness News, WFSB Channel 3. Also with us, David Collins, columnist for the day in New London, and Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public. He's also a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. This is The Wheelhouse. Coming up, it was just two summers ago when MGM opened its casino in downtown Springfield. Now MGM says half of its staff won't be getting their jobs back. We'll talk about how the news will affect Connecticut's two casinos. Also this week, back to school looked very different for thousands of public school students. You can join us. Find us at WMPR Wheelhouse on Twitter. The 
This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the panel today, David Collins, columnist for The Day in New London, Susan Raff, chief capital reporter for WFSB, and Colin McEnroe is here, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. You can join us, too, on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. Now, about half of the staff at MGM Springfield got bad news. They'll be losing their jobs. 1,000 employees had been furloughed over the last six months and hoped that the casino would fully reopen and bring them back. The laid-off workers will still be on a recall list, so they might be offered jobs in the future if the casino needs more staff. MGM Springfield had first been closed, and it's been operating in a limited capacity uh, since uh, July. Uh, David, thinking back to all of the debate uh, in Connecticut when MGM Springfield was getting ready to open, uh, we know that uh, our two Connecticut tribes were really concerned about uh, the competition, and then there was talk of of having a slot facility in East Windsor. Looking now uh, at the impact of the pandemic, probably a good thing that that didn't get built. Yes, I imagine that they uh, thank their, uh, their lucky stars every day of the pandemic that they didn't build the East Windsor Casino. And you know, it's still on the table. Um, there's a lawsuit from MGM and, um, and maybe when things start to sort themselves out after the pandemic and the legislature comes back in session, there'll be a lot more discussion about whether they can go forward with East Windsor and um, sports betting and internet betting. And, um, but and I, I, I imagine that they probably don't even have financing lined up for East Windsor at this point. And it's interesting because you're right, when, they, when, when MGM was proposed and on the drawing boards, there was a, a huge um, a panic here in, uh, for the tribes because um, it seemed like they were just going to eat their lunch and that they were going to take so much of their business away, that and the Encore um, Casino in Boston. And um, turns out both the, those Massachusetts casinos opened and, and the tribes had an impact. Um, I think 5%, 7% in that neighborhood, um, their gambling numbers were down, but but not that much. I mean, it turns out that they have a pretty loyal audience um, and they built their brands over the years and um, they have these player loyalty programs and they have a lot of entertainment. Um, which um, has kind of kept them um, in the game. So, in the end, uh, MGM in Springfield was really the least of their, you know, um, and certainly nothing on the order of what they anticipated to be um, a competition. And and now during the pandemic, they've actually the tribes got ahead of things. They they were able to open before the Massachusetts casinos and Rhode Island, um, and they did a good job at it. I think they really convinced the public that they could do it. Um, that they could do it safely. Um, the numbers have not have, have shown that there hasn't been a lot of um, infection from the opening, which seemed counterintuitive. I thought at the time, oh my goodness, <laughs> and even I think Governor Romano said in Rhode Island said, "Boy, you better get that right before you open these big casinos inside." But you know, they they bought you know tractor trailers full of Purell and they rebuilt their um, ventilation systems and um, put up. Um, guards over all the tables and set apart the slot machines and, and they seem to have made it work and, and and the public has responded their numbers the Mohegan Sun numbers were um, up in July a little bit from last year remarkably um, Mohegan or Fox was down um, quite a bit in July so they didn't have a great July but their June numbers were, were surprisingly good for their reopening so um, you know all in all MGM has has faded a little bit as the as the evil um, a worry for the Eastern Connecticut tribes. 
Mm-hmm. Colin, I guess I was always skeptical that East Windsor was never really going uh, to open. Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on how uh, the casinos uh, may be able to recover from this. You mentioned that the economy is uh, probably going to get worse before it gets better. And, uh, you know, we, we depend so much, the state of Connecticut depends so much on slot revenue uh, to help uh, with uh, the budget. Right. Well, first of all, yeah, the East Windsor concept was based on the shad theory of gambling, <laughs> which is that, you know, gamblers swim upstream and you have to get some nets out across the river and catch them before they get to Springfield. I don't really think that ever made a whole lot of sense. Um, so David knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. I, I would say that in June, when the, the when the two casinos reopened, yes, they their numbers were actually really solid. Some of that, of course, was pent up demand. People who want to do this kind of thing hadn't be able to hadn't been able to do it, and they really were the only two games, not only in Connecticut but anywhere in the Northeast. They were the first two casinos in the Northeast to, to reopen. So it kind of made sense that that they'd have strong June and maybe into July numbers. And even though I absolutely believe David is correct about the fact that these men. Massachusetts casinos haven't posed the kind of apocalyptic threat to Connecticut casinos that maybe had been contemplated. You know, just as, as the lights go on all over the Northeast, just naturally, I mean, at casinos, um, as those lights go on, just naturally, there's going to be some siphoning off of the betting handle. And that the betting handle overall is just declining. You know, I mean, it's it's uh they're they've been fighting a game that they are unlikely to ultimately win uh and and but on on the other hand yeah they have been shockingly good at infection control i think part of the reason is people at casinos don't really talk to each other all that much you know talking like facing one another and talking that's how that's how you spread infection in the worst possible way and you know most people like the people the slot machines you know they're just looking right at the slot machine mm. uh, david collins uh, with the session starting up in january i believe uh, do you think that online gaming will be something that the tribes push yet again that people can game from their home or gamble from their home uh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really high on their agenda of um, um, what they'd like to see the legislature um, take up. And, um, you know, it'll be part of the mix. Probably there'll be um, some pressure to look again at East Windsor and to see why they haven't proceeded with that, and see how legitimate the concerns are about the lawsuit cloud over it. And, um, but I think, yeah, sports betting and, and internet betting, betting on your phone, betting at home, that it's a, it's a, it's a big prize and, and they're going to they're gonna pursue it. Um, as um, lustily as they can. Another thing happening this week, a lot of students around Connecticut are back to school or will be after Labor Day. Uh, today is the first time I've hosted a show from my house since March and my kids aren't here. It's so quiet. Uh, my children, like uh, many Connecticut public school students, have started with the so-called hybrid schedule. So spending some of their educational time at school and then some days at home working online. Uh, some places in our state have students returning to a normal schedule and a few communities like New Haven and Danbury are starting the school year entirely online online uh, Susan how's it going so far what have you been hearing it you know it I guess it's it's kind of rough I think for for everyone because you know you had mentioned uh, you know as a parent and you know um, sending your kids uh, to school if you're working parents have a big responsibility to supervise uh, their kids daycare uh, and then there's the added uh, uh, anxiety of sending your kids to school and with COVID, a lot of schools, uh, you know, have decided um, to do hybrid learning. 
I think in Glastonbury, they do it alphabetically. If you're A through P, you go for two and a half days uh, to actually in person, then you go home, then the other kids come in the, uh, for the remainder of the week. Um, it's stressful. I, I think that, uh, you know, and then there's technology. I know several schools because everyone's using Zoom and different things like that. Some of those systems are not uh, designed to handle so many people at some at one time. So that's an added stress. And how do you make sure that your kids are getting that learning experience? One of the things that I've been concerned about also is that kids who have, um, you know, uh, intellectual disabilities, you know, how how able are they to learn just with online learning? You know, a lot of what they need is is visual. And so I wonder how this is going to affect education going forward. Mm. Uh, Colin, uh, we know that in the spring, a lot of places, including our cities, uh, didn't have uh, the the resources to help kids uh, connect, uh, whether it be devices or helping them with their Wi-Fi at home. Uh, now a new school year has started, but those disparities still exist in some cities. Is that problematic that we, uh, the state, even though they've tried, there are still students that aren't starting on equal footing? Right. Well, look, I mean, we had... In, in a very famous way, a school system, uh, I mean, a, a statewide uh, education system of disparities before there was any COVID, right? We, we already knew that uh, children, particularly in urban environments, weren't uh, getting as good an education, even though the Constitution of Connecticut mandates that, hence all the famous lawsuits. Uh, this will do nothing but exacerbate that problem, uh, the more that it becomes uh, tech and digitally and connectively uh, driven, uh, the more another gap, another Disparity, which is that one, you know, people in in poorer environments, in urban environments, tend to have less connectivity uh, than than other people. So you've got sort of two inequalities piling on one another. Um, that said, I do feel that you know th this will be a very interesting conversation to have on October second, when we will and and it will be interesting to compare places like Danbury and New Haven to places that aren't like Danbury and New Haven. This is a very risky thing that's being done right now. Nobody should understate this. This is mm -hmm. one uh, clinician compared it to piling your entire family into a car, but letting the nine-year-old drive the car and not have very good brakes on the car. Uh, this this, you know, in reopening the schools, the, the national policy is essentially do it as quickly and as safely as possible. But that's sort of like a, a catcher telling his pitcher to throw the ball as close to the plate and as far from the bat as possible. You can't really do both. Uh, and, and, you know, children, I think, uh, you know, a lot of grandparents are going to spend some time, some Labor Day weekend time with their grandchildren because those children will not be safe to be around for a while, uh, particularly if you're older, if you're at risk, if you're immune compromised. We're, we're rolling the dice here. You know, the, the COVID pandemic is a bridge we're building as we're walking across it. Uh, this is somebody else's metaphor about, that I'm stealing, but it's very true that it's a disease we don't understand very well. We don't fully understand how it operates in children and what their level of infectivity is. We do know that historically, children have been drivers of pandemics. So this is a very risky thing we should, we're doing, and nobody should be blasé about it. I believe uh, Joe Biden is going to be talking about uh, that, about how uh, the federal government has not given enough resources uh, to help schools uh, figure out uh, education in a pandemic. Uh, David, quickly. Um, you know, I, I agree with Colin completely. I mean, it's, a, it's completely an experiment. And 
we'll cross our fingers and see how it comes out. And, and it's also being done in different ways all across the state, school systems. It's, it's a very hodgepodge kind of um, approach. And um, everybody's crossing their fingers and saying, well, ultimately, we want our kids to be in school and to have in-person learning. So we're going to try this. So it is very risky. It feels unsafe or worrisome. Um, but I, I, I've been hearing in, in this area a little bit even more worry about the college campuses that are coming back to life. And I mean, the colleges seem to be taking the precautions that you want them to, and there seems to be a lot of, um, of thought going into the to the procedures on the campuses and whatnot. But even around here, we're seeing um, um, some of the uh, students are living off campus. Um, they're they're coming from around the country um, and and going back out to pizza restaurants and. And, and into the community. And so I, I, I hear around here a little bit more worry about the college students in our midst than the, the school, the younger school kids who are under more closer supervision. Um, I, I took, Colin's totally right. We'll, we'll have to see what this looks like in October, but um, boy, here we go. I anticipate a fully remote by October 2nd. Uh, David Collins is with us, columnist for The Day in New London. Susan Raff is here, chief capital reporter for Eyewitness News Channel 3, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Coming up, we look at Joe Biden's speech attacking the president and, of course, President Donald Trump's many tweets. You can join us, too. Find us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On Monday, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden ventured out of Delaware to Pittsburgh to deliver a speech countering some of President Donald Trump's attacks. And of course, Trump punched back on Twitter. Uh, Colin, how would you rate the speech by uh, Joe Biden? Uh, more forceful than he usually is? And is that needed at this point of the uh, campaign? Well, I, I think he does need to be forceful. And I think, um, well, let's sort of go, go over to Donald Trump's side for a second and say that Donald Trump needs to shift the conversation away from COVID-19 because that is his most salient fa- uh, failure. He hasn't managed to control the disease, nor has he been able to deliver the economic benefits he implied would come if we didn't get so serious about locking down. Um, so he's got a disaster on his hands. The problem is that the, the conversation that he wants to change to, and this is where this is the point that Biden has to make again and again. Donald Trump's favorite kind of rhetoric is very negative and dark. And so uh, but as an incumbent, typically anywhere else except the bizarro planet to which Donald Trump has transported all of us as an incumbent, you can't say, don't elect this guy, Biden. Look at what's happening in the streets right now. Well, yeah, you're president right now. You're you're in power. You can't use what's happening in the streets as a reason not to elect somebody else because you own to at least to a greater degree than anyone else, what's happening in the streets. You own what's happening in schools. You own what's happening with COVID. So he can't really run, you know, as a change candidate, which is kind of what he's trying to do. So I think Biden just has to pound away at that. This is the guy who's running the country right now. The country is not in good shape in so many different ways. Don't let him make the argument that I will cause problems. He's already caused those problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Collins, uh, what do you think? Yes, I, I also think that um, it's time that Biden um, hangs it all around um, Trump's neck in a, in a much more direct way and forceful way. And you saw that already this weekend. Um, as Collins says, you, 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 can't, you can't be the president while the country is in such tatters. And 
and say, oh, elect me and I'll make it better. Well, you're the president now. And, and clearly, you know, there's so much of it is, is you can trace to him and the way he incites violence and, and the way he riles up his, his base. And, um, and, and it's, it's leading to these problems. And, and, and Biden certainly has to make that clear. He has to uh, just pound away at that. This is Trump's America and it's a mess. Uh, not just from COVID and the economy, but also this violence that he's not addressing. He's not bringing the country together in any meaningful way. And, and that's really, you know, it's all the, it's that it's that whole um, triple play, really, that Biden needs to kind of hit home with. And, and we're starting to see a little bit of that this weekend. And, you know, I, he's, he's, I, maybe he's going to go to Wisconsin soon, too. And I think um, it's September now. Maybe the, the campaign is going to kind of roll out and, and, and um, move around the country and, and start to raise these issues more forcefully. Um, so I, I would look to that. that he seems, seems to have hit his stride with that speech, and um, hopefully there's a lot more of it to come. Uh, Susan, there's still plenty of Americans who approve of Donald Trump as president, including uh, people in our state. So when we look at some of the messaging uh, that President Trump has uh, unrolled yet again, that he's the law and order president, you need to fear uh, the demonstrators and the violence on the streets and uh, that Joe Biden would be somebody that would make it worse. I mean, how does that uh, really resonate with his supporters? What do we know? No, I, I just, you know, I think that Joe Biden is trying to, you know, he doesn't have a magic pill to to solve what's going on in this country. I'm not sure anyone uh, really does. And you could blame Donald Trump for that. You could blame other things. But I think we're seeing some really ugly times right now, not just because of COVID, but race relations and such tension everywhere. And I think it's tough to be an American. I know that's kind of a down uh, thing to say. So I and I think that, you know, there's a lot of divisiveness and anger in communities. You see it on social media. Uh, people are very frustrated, angry with what's happening. Uh, and I think they're taking it out on, on each other. I, you know, I don't really know, um, you know, what's going to happen uh, in this election. Uh, I, I really don't. I, I don't. I don't have a crystal ball. I see people very angry. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wonder where that's all headed. I can't help but think, you know, I certainly, I miss Barack Obama and his calm leadership at times like this. And um, and yet I can't help but even think how reassuring it would be to have um, George Bush in the White House and, and, and leading the country through this turmoil. Um, and, and, and I think it even goes beyond politics. It's just, it's not in his nature, Trump's nature to, to sort of bring the country together in this time. And I, I think it it's not just it's not his politics it's not it's not republican versus democrat um it's really his temperament and his his the way he's um positioned himself in his campaign and his administration um that's so so um uh, disruptive and harmful for the country mm, colin would you feel reassured if george w was uh, back in the oval office i would be reassured if a shrubbery was back <laughs> in the office uh, any bush at all really uh, would be fine with me and i think david's david's right that there's there are politics or politics and ideology is ideology but temperament you know i mean and and temperament's really incredibly important and donald trump is the least suited temperamentally to being president in a crisis of almost any leader i can think of 
And he went to Wisconsin on Tuesday, uh, where there are tensions boiling over. Again, uh, the president is uh, defending uh, this 17-year-old who went to Kenosha and shot and killed uh, two people. It certainly appears that, you know, he hasn't learned from uh, previous remarks. He still thinks that this is a, a way to reach his base, Colin. Yeah, and I, maybe a, a, a salient moment from that visit. So he wanted to, his advanced team had planned for him to appear with a guy who ran a camera store there that had been burned to the ground. And it turned out the guy didn't want to meet with him because he thinks what you just said. He thinks that Trump is a guy who puts gasoline on fires, that he makes things worse, that he turns things into a circus. So what the advanced team did was they found the former owner of the store, a guy who hadn't owned the store for eight years, and they had Trump talk to him on camera in a way that pretended that this was the owner of the camera store. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's like a little parable that, that kind of tells you where the Trump campaign is right now. Mm. Uh, David Collins, when we think back to the pandemic, 180,000 Americans dead, uh, Joe Biden uh, saying that President Trump is to blame. Is that a message that will resonate with people? Uh, well, certainly, as Tom pointed out, his, uh, the president is, is constantly trying to to change the subject because it's not a good subject for him and and uh, people are still living the pandemic and, and, and all of its um impacts and, and fears and problems and and so and, and you can't help but not blame the president for for uh, for letting us um drift into this um so deeply and and clearly there's a there's a there's a, a easy a record of of his failures and how the country approached this and, and how we stack up uh, against other developed countries around the world, um, he you know he, he dropped the ball from the very beginning. There's a clear clear record of that. He knows it and he's and he's trying to change the subject. And I, you know I don't know I, I look a little bit um, at history in the 2018 elections and we've talked about uh, all we heard from him was you know caravans of violent people approaching the borders and, and now he's turned that to sort of dark apocalyptic talk into a, a democratic cities his own cities the, the people americans um, the, um he's his country that he's president of so I, 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 it didn't work in 2018 very well for him and and i, I don't know I, I'm, I'm not sure it seems to be working this time Mm. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, time for our feats of strength and airing of grievances. We've got a good five minutes, so take your time. Susan Raff, let's hear from you. All right. Well, I think I've said some of the things uh, just a moment ago that I think that, you know, there's just so much anxiety right now with COVID and people are very upset. As a mother of a college student, I have, you know, my own anxieties about what's happening. Uh, and there's so much going on in this world. And I think people are very upset and angry and there's a lot of hatred. And I would like people to just put down their swords for a minute and realize that, you know, we, we all should uh, work together. Mm. David Collins. Um, I'd like to call out a guy, um, his name is Kevin Blacker. He's um, um, become known as the, the principal critic of the Connecticut Port Authority, which I've written a lot about. Um, a lot of unfolding scandals that um, he helped bring to light, and uh, he got arrested this week. Um, he had painted some of the signs down to the pier uh, in pink. Um, he was arrested on a felony charge uh, yesterday on a, a warrant from state police. And it strikes me as so, I mean, first of all, uh, um, cheers to him. He, he, he's tried so hard to, to bring 
to right the wrongs that he's seen there. And true, you know, there, there were these terrible scandals and people were giving contracts to their friends and selling artwork to their daughters and, um, you know, so many things that people did that uh, lying to the legislature and, and hearings and testimony. And here, Kevin just trying to kind of bring it out and, and to have a little civil, civil disobedience and paints these signs. Paint the signs are going to come down anyway. And um, I, I, you know, I just cheers to him for, for calling it out and trying to bring everybody's attention to, it, to a continuing problem with the pure shutdown. Mm, Colin? Feet of strength would be 74-year-old Ed Markey fending off a challenge from a Kennedy in Massachusetts. That is not easy to do. Uh, a grievance would be President Trump's insistence on working very specifically with the Big Ten, not with college football, with the Big Ten to get uh, football reopened. Why do you think that might be? It wouldn't be because the Big Ten basically covers a lot of major battleground states, uh, states that he needs. He's not interested in getting the Pac-10 reopened. Um, lastly, I would just quickly call people's attention to a story that is amazing, but it's flying under the radar. Uh, and that is the case of Michael Flynn, where a federal judge and then a federal appeals court has ruled that the Justice Department cannot just drop the charges against Flynn, uh, that they have to explain why they dropped the charges against Flynn, that Judge Emmett Sullivan is allowed to call for an investigation of why Attorney General Barr and the Justice Department are trying to drop charges against a guy who's already pled guilty and admitted to lying to the FBI. I don't know when in history something like that has happened. Mm. I want to give a, a feat of strength to longtime WFSB journalist Dennis House. A surprising announcement uh, yesterday uh, that he and Channel 3 have mutually agreed to part ways. Uh, Dennis has spent 28 years at WFSB. Uh, in my experience with him, he was always supportive of journalists, no matter if they worked in TV, radio, or print. He took time to interview political candidates and even invited public radio journalists on his show, Face the State, to talk about our work. Uh, best wishes to Dennis House house. We can't wait to hear what's next for you. Uh, today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. Thanks to our great panelists, David Collins from the Day in New London, Susan Rapp from Channel 3, and Colin McEnroe, of course. Uh, and also our tech producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. We'll, back, we'll be back next week.